the highest paid male supermodel in the world. Been the face on billboards in Times Square and starred in music videos with A-list celebrities. Kate Moss and Naomi and Chrissy Turlington, they were brands within the fashion industry. You, of course, had to get noticed, get noticed. It was to work with a major fashion house. You hear about what the female supermodels are making, and of course you want to rival that. 350 days a year for this amount. What if you got an exclusive contract and you work two days a year for that same amount? My agency said, you are Dolce & Gabbana. Believe me, if you're constantly pushing those boundaries you're gonna have imposter syndrome. What am I doing here? I'm gonna get found out. We're rolling. I'm ready. <laughs> Great to see you again, David. Good to see you, sir. How are you? I'm okay, thank you. Not bad. What's uh, what's going on in, in your life now? We were, in, we were talking in the spring. You yep. were moving houses. Building houses. Yeah, building houses. Yep. Moving, building. Uh, that's a big big project we're doing at the moment. Um, which is exciting, really, really exciting. A project I've, a size I've never taken on before. But um, I didn't need something this big before, but now I have family and children and mm. everything else. And if you get children, all you understand is that you need space. And uh, then when you get space, you need you, re- you realize you need more and more space. <laughs> <laughs> Anything to keep the kids uh, quiet and entertained, I suppose. So, um, yeah, it's an exciting project. We've got that, and of course, we've got... Uh, Wellware, which is we're coming out to our um, year anniversary, and um, I've also you know can't forget about the old job, which is the modelling licensing side into into the fashion as well. So um, very busy time at the moment. Yeah, I want to deep dive deeper into that. You've had a very interesting career, I think, <laughs> with a lot of um, different crossroads and uh, decisions that you've been taking throughout your life. Um, and I want to start off with. Asking you, you know, you've been in the modeling world for a long time Mm. and uh, the highest paid model, male supermodel in the world. um, And there are a lot of models out there and there have been through the years. Mm. What is it that you think made you rise to the top of this league? Good question. Uh, I mean, I think I suppose... In many ways, we saw it as a, um, I run it as a business and a brand more than, when you say modeling business, I say sort of fashion business or the fashion world. So uh, the connotations that are, or the pigeonholing of being a model, of course, has changed a little bit, but not so much. And I saw something within the male modeling industry that I thought I could make an impact on. So I saw where as from being a male model you could reach and it was never to uh, to the heights of where the female models were going and I questioned this and I questioned the contracts we were on and I questioned everything about it and um, that's where it kind of started and saw a, I suppose you can see in, in many ways running as business you saw a gap in the market in many ways mm-hmm. and uh, that was a lot to do with a strategy to get us there and I say us because it, you know, the important part of this is uh, working with Tandy Anson and the select modeling agency team who I've been with for 22 years. Um, and a lot of agencies would not have, I suppose, uh, worked with me on this. You know, that we were, um, it was something very risky, something very different, and, um, but it paid off. And that's sort of the way um, I suppose I differ from, from others in many ways. And a lot of male models they will come now to talk to me and say, how did you achieve what you achieved? How can I 
get to the same um, same success maybe. And um, I talked to them about what we had, you know what you have to do and how you have to dedicate yourself. And uh, and when I'm saying dedication, it's also sacrificing. It, it's not sitting at home waiting for your agency to call. Hmm. Um, it's uh, there's a lot of sacrifices. Of, you know, being made you're self-employed as a model and um, yeah I, I, I haven't stopped pretty much that's that the difference as well was like um, working very very hard on of what you, know, you want to achieve and setting goals and um, yeah those goals shouldn't really change the way you get to those goals do change I call it a game of chess you're making your moves in many ways um, and you have to adapt sometimes and then other opportunities come are open to you and you either decide to take those or not but it's a constant decision from you um, but the game you know the goal is where do I want to be in five years and where do I want to be in 10 years and where do I want to be in 15 years and we've worked towards those goals and moving the pieces to hopefully get there were you always this goal-oriented when you got into the business or was that something that gradually it, happened over time that you were like wow I want to reach you know I'm seeing a vision here there was definitely a vision um, goal-oriented growing up I, I I can't really say but it was working up was was just growing up was just hard work I learned that from my parents you know they were they had their own businesses and it was um, I suppose ground into me that I, I, I saw them when you're in business there's lots of advantages to it the other advantage is from seven o'clock until midnight you're working you're never off and uh, so that was just a natural thing for me to do which I suppose is in a in hindsight it it, it helped me a lot um, but yeah goal orientation is something I believe in if you don't have a goal how do you know the direction you're going in your you're waiting for Otherwise, you're waiting for, um, I suppose, other variants to take you in different directions, whether that will be. Mm -hmm. But if you've got a, a goal and you know that's where you want to be and, and that's what you want to achieve, again, you, they, those goals can increase a little bit. They can change slightly. But you've got to get there. And then I suppose one of the things I can do is I can see how a decision one month can impact something five months later and even in the, you know the company with well i say we're doing this now and they can't sometimes the team can't see why this is so important to me but i can see where that could lead to now we could plant 10 of those seeds to where i want to be and three of them come off and you know a lot of them don't mm -hmm. but you have to sort of get to that point of, of taking those chances and seeing where those seeds can grow and hopefully a few of them do take off um but that's what i always do and that, that's where i've always seen it um, the goal originally in, in modeling was, well, I was a name within the industry, but not out of the industry. And if you looked at all the names of female supermodels, when you talk about Kate Moss and Naomi and Chrissy Turlington, Cindy Crawford, they were brands within the, you know, within the fashion industry. If you said Kate in the fashion industry, you knew Kate Moss. If you said Naomi, you knew no, Cindy, same They're thing. They're all first name, artist name basis. And that's and they'd built their brand and they were business brilliant, uh, you know, brilliant businesswomen. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, so um, that was the platform that I that I kind of instilled and said, right. So it's about branding. You had to to uh, start building that brand. You of course had to get noticed, get noticed, 
was to work with a major fashion house. That was Dolce & Gabbana, that was Light Blue. Now, I'm very fortunate that Light Blue came about, of course, um, and it was as big as it was. But that was a stepping stone I then needed to then put a name to who that person was. So then we started building that, and of course, gradually, that builds, and you get noticed, and you build the covers, and you build the branding, and you do your own book, and then you do the underwear line with, with uh, Dolce, and then what people don't understand is that you know, when I wanted to do a, my first own line, a, you know, a collaboration of my own, um, uh, own fashion brand in many ways, the, the, the seed was planted for that five years prior. You know, then you have to work, still build your brand up to that point that you can do that, and then yeah, work towards that in many ways. So that's how far in advance I'm thinking of where I want to be mm. in many ways. And you said when uh, you know younger models or I guess younger people in the fashion industry comes and ask you for advice, the business is, I guess, a lot different now mm, from mm -hmm. when you were in their age, yeah. possibly. Yeah. Um, and you see it in acting, you see it in music, mm -hmm. where the gatekeeper and the middleman kind of goes out in a way and you have a more direct relationship with yep. consumers or fans and so on. Yep. Um, do you think, you know, how, how do you apply your learnings to whoever comes up and asks you for advice today? Do you think uh, it's, a, it's a very transferable skill, so to speak? Or What, what, you've, what you've just said there is, is completely true. And, I, and I'm very honest with guys who, not just in the uh, fashion world, I've... Um, had people from you know, young chefs and actors and approach me um, about advice. And I, have, and I say the same thing is that um, it's a very different world to the one that I started in, especially in the fashion world. Um, there are advantages again, or you'd be probably talking about social media and the direct interaction with, with fans and followers and brands. You know, you're less reliant on agencies now, of course, mm. or management, uh, but it's still an important factor. Um, And of course, you can build this following. You know, to build a brand, when you were looking at, uh, you know, back in what 2006 when I did, you needed to work with a fashion brand. You didn't mm. have social media. If you wanted to be, you know, in the press, in the papers, um, on billboards, you can't afford that. But now that social media, you, know, you can get that following immediately mm. in some ways and, and build on that and money. You know, you know, to monetize that as well, of course. And that's what people have done. Uh, and that's where we understand influencers and the brand now use influencers and YouTubers and gamers. And But then that's moved on, of course. You never thought about gamers before, but now brands are, it's such a sort of wildly watched now form of entertainment. That of course, brands just will, will look at numbers mm. and engagement. And that's what they look at more than, I believe, more than the creativity. Mm. That's why I've seen, from my point of view, I think the, the creativity is completely diminished in many ways. Where you used to have these Vogue and GQs and billboards and campaigns and these iconic images, you very rarely see it now. Um, you mean the creativity in the actual productions, as in? You had to create something, when we say with light blue, we had to create something that was gonna um, be aspirational. You had to tick all these boxes. This is why you use the genius of Dolce Gabbana and Mario Testino, and Dolce still do it. You know, still shooting campaigns with uh, with J Lo, and they're on billboards, and it still works. Um, Gucci are another brand that's still, you know, obviously creative. 
that creative element is important to them. But for smaller brands, of course, the world is now open for them to create something of their own. Mm. Um, but you're not going to have, have some of the best photographers in the world and those high production values and everything else. Mm. But And that's where some brands have reacted to that by saying, we'll go online and we won't do the billboards and creativity. And so they've gone down that avenue as well. And that then, when you have these iconic books from these iconic photographers and brands of everything they've created, because that was the way we had to market, you're not going to see that anymore. Um, and it is quite disposable. Disposable in the fact that you might have seen, you know, you, you'll buy a magazine and see these, you know, these uh, campaigns or you see it on a billboard, don't see them that often. Mm. But of course, now we're flicking through our thumbs on Instagram and TikTok mm. and we're seeing, I, I, goodness knows, hundreds of different creatives every hour. Mm. So it's got to take, still take something to stand out, of course. Um, but I'm not saying anything against it because I, you know, I, I, I sort of love these alternative ways in many ways. It's not for me, and I always say I, I, I don't put my private life on or much of my life mm. on social media. It's a lot to do with business. So if that was turned around now and I was 21, 22 when I came in the industry now, I wouldn't have achieved what I would because I wouldn't be willing to put everything on social. So it would have changed. So you're kind of grateful that it happened for you. Very once. grateful. Very, very grateful. Yeah. I'm, I'm like really, really... To do it before all social media and mm. the internet, of course, was around, but social, yeah, mm. pages, then then yes, absolutely. And speaking of Dolce Gabbana, was that was there like one moment or was it more of a gradual period of time where you felt that, you know, your world changed basically because it all went so quickly up? Yeah, I mean, I suppose... Um, People look at light blue, and I say without light blue, which is the the, the famous commercial which we we were shooting a update of last week mm -hmm. in Capri. Mm -hmm. um, and the first one was also in Capri. It was, yeah, or, yeah always in Capri. And um, but then, uh, and that obviously it changed from that campaign launching to the next day, literally press banging at the door at my agency's door saying, "Can we have interviews? And we need to know who this person is." So yeah, of course that mm -hmm. changed. But I know the work that went into getting that. Mm. And people might think they just chose me. But mm. actually, that started in my first show season. I did a, uh, the, the Dolce Gabbana show. The second season, I, uh, I was on option for um, a big campaign and refused to have my hair cut for the show because I, they needed longer hair for this other campaign. I couldn't do the show. Um, or Stefano and Domenico said, you either cut your hair or you don't do the show, mm. or so I didn't do the show. Because you would lose that other... Because okay. I, I also lost the campaign as well to the other one I didn't get chosen, okay. so it wasn't a, it wasn't a good week. Um, <laughs> but um, I suppose it was that stead, you know, steadfastness in me and that maybe that stubbornness that knew what it took as well mm. to, to, I suppose, um, sort of believe that I was making the right decisions all the time. Mm. Um, and then... That was probably, what, 2002, 2005. Then that was when we orchestrated to go meet them again. And that was my agency, Tandy Anson, who said, you, you are Dolce & Gabbana. Believe me, everyone was saying you should go for Armani or Ralph Lauren. You'll definitely get one of these. And Tandy had this vision saying, Dolce, Dolce, that's the one. And there was a party in London for a great photographer friend of mine. And um, Tandy came up with the idea of me coming to this party to say hello to Domenico and Stefano again and uh, obviously I changed at that point I was gone from 
I suppose you're, you're, you're at that funny point at 21, 22, you're not a teenager and not a man, mm. and then you, you change a lot in that sort of four years. Um, and then they saw me and said, hi, David, again, and two weeks later booked me for the campaign. And then from the campaign, that went very well, and then they booked me for the show, and then Select started talking to them, and then that's when Light Blue came about. So um, there, was a, there was a lot of stepping stones to get to that point. Mm. And of course, I suppose a lot of people could have uh, sat on their laurels on that. One of the biggest campaigns turned out to be one of the biggest campaigns, an iconic mm. image and not done anything. But that to me was the starting point um, to where I really wanted to achieve. And that's where we went from there. And during that time, <clears throat> I mean, I guess it's been throughout all the years in the fashion industry. Um, but during that time, did you feel that there was this, you know, male ideal that you'd did fit into or not fit into? I guess, as you mentioned, Ralph Lauren, they had their certain type sure. um, that they shot, but mm. um, were you like directed a lot on the way you were supposed to be looking and? No. Do you mean outside of, I mean, you know, the campaigns, the, um, the editorial was, that is a team, that is a production mm. team. There's the best stylists and everything. So, you know, you don't have much of a say, but I wanted more of a say. And of course I then, wanted to be an individual and the brand has to be an individual in mm. my point of view um so i've never had a stylist um never had a, a glam squad that people seem to have now mm. um so yeah my idea was creating something for myself and i was known for you know, sort of like i love tailoring and i love suits and um was starting to get known for that in many ways because mm. it was a little bit against the grain with you know, dressing down nature, which we've come back to a little bit, but suits weren't a, a major thing. And I was walking, you know, I was in three-piece suits and two-piece suits and um, getting suits made in, uh, by Tom Sweeney and Savile Row and all those different things. And then that sort of came about again. I was sort of known for that. And mm. very fortunately then, you know, received people seemed to like what I was doing and I was then winning awards for Stylish Man and things like that so um but that was again from knowing hopefully where my brand needs to be and me being steadfast in the fact that I wasn't going to be one of a crowd I was very I was different to that mm. um so I wanted to not purposely different it's the way I felt comfortable I dress for the way that is comfortable for me mm. um some people like it some people don't but that's um that's the way I feel most confident you know most confident in at the end of the day and uh, I remember hearing you say, I don't know if that was on a podcast, but that there was this, um, was it in, that in America, there were like a certain ideal, but as in parts of the other world, like in Europe, for instance, you wouldn't supposed to be as big um, as, a, as a male model. You were, um, you know, maybe not supposed to work out that much if you were going into high fashion. And uh, Oh, that was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that was um, the time I came into fashion was was not a time for um, sort of muscular, bigger, trained people. It was about the, the Dior guys, the, mm. um, the androgynous look. Mm. And of course, it, within fashion, everyone seems to do the same thing. And, 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 uh, and all the guys were, and all the, you know, the agencies were 
choosing those guys and all the shows were the skinnier guys so yeah when I was casting for something I couldn't fit the trousers on I couldn't put not that I was big anyway like when I came into 22 but uh, 21 or 22 but I was always training my life and it was just at that stage and then I started to for my own well-being and for um, the way I felt more comfortable was to be fit and healthy and that included training so I was getting bigger and of course the bigger I got the less clothes I was fitting in um but I wasn't willing to, but, but from my point of view, I, I looked and thought, does this, you know, does this cycle change within fashion? They were going to go back to at one point, maybe after the more classical bigger guys of the, the 80s and the 90s. Mm. And this is just a period and then it will change. And pretty much what Light Blue did, you know. Mm. And, but when, so when uh, Dolce & Gabbana came to casting, I believe came to casting Light Blue, of course they wanted this in what they envisaged in their head. And then you were, they were choosing from a smaller pond because everyone had yeah. you know, copied each other and gone down this other route. And um, so, yeah, I fitted their, their idea of what their vision was and uh, luckily sort of created what, what we did. Um, but, yeah, so that's... Um, of course, that then changed and then everyone tried to pursue and copy the... Yeah, the new... The light blue yeah. guy started training. <laughs> so that was things. kind of a deliberate decision on your side then that you wanted to you know stay in the the type of body that you felt good about instead of you yeah, know, that adjusting to wouldn't have, it whatever the industry asked for you whatever industry i would have been in yeah i would have been i would have looked the same i would have trained yeah. that's i'm, I'm not going to change my way of sort of looking a lot of people would and that's understandable for them but not for me have you seen the movie uh, it's a very new movie called triangle of sadness no it's in the beginning it's about a uh, male modeling casting i think right. it's it's a very funny scene where they're asking <laughs> some to do the h&m look and some to do the balenciaga look <laughs> and it's like the grumpy look and the happy look and it's a hilarious scene <laughs> i want to hear from you if it's very accurate uh i've, heard, ne- I've never heard of the looks of the certain brands but i, I, I do understand it's you know a lot of people when you're doing campaigns they say, you look you know why don't you have a smiling campaigns or something and as if you're just you know you're never smiling but um there's different you know if you do whatever uh, whatever the creative is for the shoot you know something more commercial is going to require something a bit more smiling a bit more sort of repertoire Mm -hmm. and then for campaigns you're not really there with a beaming smile but there are campaigns with depends every campaign is different Mm. so um no, it's uh, I, I I do totally understand what they're what they're saying about that. <laughs> the movie yeah. actually got its name from what they call the casting director in the scene calls the triangle of sadness, which right. is <laughs> when you're you know making that that face. It says yeah. lose your triangle of sadness to the uh, <laughs> yeah to the model in that case. It's a great movie. I saw it last week. Okay, I have to uh, I have to shut that out. And it's a Swedish point. movie, so okay. you know I'm a bit biased. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that's you know I think that's very um, I think that's very interesting to think you know when you're looking back, what are some important crossroads that comes to your mind, be it personal or career wise that have could have gone, you know both ways mm-hmm. that could have been to the right to the left and you happen to go to the right or the left. Um, yeah. Are there things that come to your mind that you know? It's kind of a butterfly effect. You wouldn't be here if you would gone down the way. You can think of that both ways. You can think of if something had happened afterwards. You know, you make the decisions. You cut. I, I very rarely look back. I, I don't. I don't believe in regretting something mm-hmm. um, because you're not quite sure. There's also those moments that you said yes, I, I did that and it worked out well. There's probably a lot of moments that you did something 
and you might have missed something. You might have missed yeah. an opportunity. If I didn't turn up to Dolce at that dinner, would it have yeah. affected you? Yes, it probably would have. So um, it's taken those opportunities. Mm. Um, but uh, I mean, there's so many, and that's what people don't kind of like realize. You know, I can do it was the the decision to give up all the commercial work and the campaign. You know, not the campaign work, but the commercial catalog work because it was not enjoying it. So I wouldn't have stayed in industry that I was. I wanted mm. to create. I wanted to work with the best creatives. I wanted to create something which I thought uh, you know, was was iconic. And it's don't use that name sort of lightly, but that's what mm. the light blue has, is mm. becoming in many ways. But the commercial would have been a more direct, financially better way to go at that point, I guess. Just no, no, it's not. No, okay. I mean it, it is. Um, you earn very good money. But I wasn't. It wasn't money I was thinking about in, mm. in in the long run, in probably in the short term. In the long run, of course, you do. Um, you hear about what the female supermodels are, are making, mm. and of course, you want to rival that mm. in many ways. So, um, but again, that was uh, this decision. That, you know, we've we've negotiated on campaigns where where I said to guys, so you're working 350 days a year for this amount, and you're flying around the world doing this, and you're well, what if you got an exclusive contract and you work two days a year for that same amount. That kind of thing, that, that would never happen. Never happen. I was like, okay. It did happen. <laughs> so I knew it existed. Okay. So okay. that was the way I thought about it. <clears throat> but that requires you to then not work for a lot of different companies. That's another mm. thing I don't... Once Dolce used me, I was very loyal to Dolce. And the brands mm. before. Mm. Massimo Dutti, Jaguar, mm. all those different companies. Um... You know, they. I was after Light Blue. Of course, you you then have a lot of brands who want to use you and say, "Can you come and do our show? Can you come and do our campaign?" Mm. And I didn't because of my loyalty to Dolce. Um, and you know, I felt like sent them. I've been around for a while. I was. You know, you could have you could have given me the opportunity, but you didn't. Now you want to sort of have me on because of where we are and mm. the amount of coverage we're getting. But I was just steadfast with with Dolce, and we're still working together to this day. You know, that's uh, since 2005 onwards. But you can say it could be since 2002 when I did their first show. So it's been nearly 20, uh, probably 20 years, 22 years I've been working with them. And that's very rare in the fashion industry to have that amount yeah. of loyalty. Very, very rare. Yeah, I guess that's even more rare now when, as oh, you said, like absolutely. it's just the competition is, mm-hmm. and is getting more intense and you have more people popping off, but also... Mm-hmm. Know, having a shorter yeah. well this, this is the way I look at um, I suppose you know, the disposable of, of disposable creative of something like social mm. is that someone will be a they're looking at watches and then they'll show you a watch on <coughs> Hugo Boss one day and then Breitling the next and saying oh this is the best and they're the best but there's a lot mm. they, you know, that's the way they are used in that many ways when I was I worked for brands I believed in. Um, very loyal to those brands. We approach brands I want to work with as well, where we think we've got a, um, a good rapport and a good connection. Mm. Um, so yeah, there was, there's um, what I stand for. And, and you know, If I put something on social, a lot of those brands aren't paying me. You know, this is what I did first of all to a lot of brands. Tom Sweeney, my tailor to this day, good friends now. They asked me to come on and would they like some tailored suits? They were the best suits I ever wore. They got me, you know, they had shots in all the red carpets, Men's Fashion Week, me and Tom Sweeney suits. I didn't make anything from that. That was just, you know, 
helping a brand and mm. helping some good guys out. Um, I don't think that really exists anymore either. Yeah. <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> During these interviews, I've traveled around and spent a lot of time in many different airports and airplanes. And if you traveled from any of the major Nordic airports last year, you probably know of the security lines that were three hours long and that we had a so-called mountain of luggage. And I learned the hard way because that's where my bag was buried for weeks. So that's why I'm very happy to announce SQL's partnership with American Express. And I've been an American Express Platinum member since a long time. And that's just saved me so much time and headache in traveling especially. And as a member, you can use a fast track line to skip the waiting in security at selected airports. And their travel insurance is one of the strongest on the market. So when my bag was lost, I was reimbursed for buying a set of new clothes and they help you with many other things that can go wrong when you travel. So if you also want less headaches and a better experience when traveling, you can find out more about the Platinum Card in the description below or on the American Express website. But before you, uh, you know, when you went into the fashion world, mm -hmm. was there ever an alternative path that you were thinking about, you know, could there at that age where you, you know, no, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Yeah. That was coming out of university. I went to university. As I sort of famously say, the only thing I learned at university was that I shouldn't have gone to university. <laughs> um, but I followed, again... Why I, is that? I, I suppose I learned that because I, I followed what everyone else was doing. Okay. You've got to follow your own path. Mm. I, I, I got decent grades when I work at something. I can get very, very good grades. But, it, you know, academia, that setting, I felt from school to university was just holding me back. I wanted to see the world. I wanted to explore. I wanted to um, sort of go my own way. And my work ethic I knew would hopefully get me there, not sort of grade. So I was never worried about that. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was, it was I, I, I'm not sure what I could have ended up doing at the end of the day, but there wasn't a crossroads that. But uh, I just knew what I had learned and I didn't, you know, computing multimedia which actually at that point was quite an astute thing to do considering the world we are in now. But I knew it wasn't something I wanted the future in. Um, so when you were there, you were kind of following the stream, mm. but this must have been then a very different stream oh, to what everybody else was doing. <laughs> it was a big right turn. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'd never you know, aspired to be in the fashion industry. I, one thing I loved, I, I always loved design. You know, cars mm. were my passion, design was my passion. Uh, not that I could afford to build houses or buy houses, but that I realized that design was a major, major impacting in, in my life. Um, and even I sort of realized I was going to uh, charity shops or vintage shops to buy clothing, not elsewhere, mm. because I was quite specific about things I wanted to wear. Um, but of course, I, I, I didn't have any advice. I came into the fashion industry, there's no one in my family that could have given me advice on that or branding or mm. anything else. So this is all things that we learned. You know, we had to, we made mistakes and we, we made some good decisions and um, yeah, it's, it's worked out okay. Have you had a, a mentor during this time? Like yeah. uh, no yeah. one you've been calling up for? You, in some ways it's very, very difficult to, to have a mentor because no one had done what yeah. we doing. <laughs> when I spoke to the female supermodels, if I was fortunate enough to work with them, Chrissy Turlington, but you also take something without, you know, without speaking to them. You know, was, you know, Chrissy turned up, no entourage, just her and her dog that saw her, the brilliance of the, the charm she had with the crew, with the brand. Mm. Um, and then you look at someone else who 
have a, one example of a guy who was who was on the brink of really making it quite big, and I saw him the way he treated people mm. at a campaign, and he thought he was a lot bigger than he actually was, um, and I thought that was the wrong way to go. And yeah, it's you soon get found out a bit, really, mm. in in many ways. So it's observing. I always said that five years. I didn't know anything about the fashion industry. I didn't know how it worked. Um, didn't know anything about castings, fashion weeks, anything. So that sort of four or five years between when I started and got Dolce was a lot of you know, a lot of uh, observing, you know, in the industry and realizing how it works. Um, yeah, and then and then sort of impacting on that really. Have you during this time had you know this kind of imposter voice in your head? That you know, I guess that can happen, especially when you come from the outside, and there's mm-hmm. so much mm-hmm. to learn, and there's so many people. Maybe even especially in this industry. Yeah, imposter syndrome. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a constant, constant, even to this day. Um, what has that voice said? I don't even know what it said. And you, 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 the way I take it is that someone you feel like you're going to get found out, like you're you shouldn't be there. And there's a lot of people saying, I do find a lot of people, <laughs> like I said, you know, when I said about the, uh, the contracts and working so many days a year, but having an exclusive, you know, you'll never do that. That's what I've heard most of my career. You'll never be able to do it. And that pushes you on even more. So maybe it's not your voice. You have to believe in what you're doing. Mm. You've got a lot of people around you saying this isn't possible. Um, but also I'm a realist. There's a difference. Mm. You have to be realistic thinking you're true. I would love to be a vet. I would give up everything to this day to go and have a veterinary Even today? Even today. Give up everything to be a vet. But I'm realistic that I'm never (laughs) going to get those grades. Um, So I'd be a brilliant vet if you didn't want your dog to survive the surgery. (laughs) But until that, so I'm a realist behind. And that's what people have got to be. There is still an aim to where you need to be and a goal. But you've got to be realistic about it. Mm. Um, And realism has, has slightly... In, in this world has has uh, changed a little bit. And um, it's very hard for people to say, I, I, I want to get where you have been. You know, do you think I could be, in, be a model? And you look at them and you you think, and I just say to them, if you think you can, but go and compare yourself to the best models at the moment, the best influencers, and if you think you can rival them, then yes. I can't say whether you can or not, but mm. it's up to you to decide or not. So, um, yeah, I was never. There's you got to know your your uh, you got to know your pros and cons, I suppose, in many ways. My advantages. I'm not great in front of camera. I'm not a presenter. I'm not. You know, I I, would, I could never do any of that. That's not me. If anything, I've gone to behind the camera more than in front of the camera. People never understand that either. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Mm. No. Yeah. But when someone somebody comes up and asks that, so you think it's more about their own belief in what they're able to do rather than you know l- look at me and and do you think i would make it or not you, you believe that it's more i mean in it, their head the fashion industry is the modeling industry is based around the way you look yeah that's the fundamentals of it if a brand thinks you're right for your creative that's basically it. there's no okay maybe the acting industry mm. it's an important part but you also need to know how to act of mm. course otherwise you'll be found out pretty quickly mm. so the fashion industry is based on that mm. so yes it's tough to say you either look you're right or you don't mm. 
but there are you know, so many different models and looks and there are runaway models and campaign models and but again this is all changing mm. um but fundamentally that is so it's a very tough call to say and that's why i would never judge anyone to say and if they say how do i get into modeling i can give them advice i say it's down to the modeling agencies really and down to the brands so that's it mm. if they want to take you on you they, they think there's um you know some some real hope in 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 uh, in you doing well in this industry that's down to you it's not down to me so um i just concentrated on where i thought i could be you know and that's if we were you know the 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 androgynous world of skinny models carried on of course i wouldn't have done as you know well as i as i as i did mm. or have done in the world so um but it, but it did change and i hopefully saw that change coming and that's where that that's sort of the difference. So people need to be a little bit realistic mm. sometimes for what they can do. And the industry, the fashion world, maybe even especially the modeling world, is a bit notorious for, as you say, I mean, mental health. There's mm -hmm. a lot of problems with eating disorder and a, a lot around it. What, what's been your relationship with that? Have you been able to withstand um, mm. yeah, yeah, your mental you health? Probably get from uh, what I said about me going my own path. Mm. that was me being healthy that was me being doing stuff for my mental well-being that I was okay um, I was a little bit older in the industry I was 21 nearly 22 so you maybe think you got a bit of a um, an older head on your shoulders to be able to make those decisions um, so being 21 is considered being older in, in the in, fashion world yeah, though, yeah, it is yeah um, but you've got kids of 15 16 yeah. you know so um, it's uh, you can be influenced a lot um, but there's yeah, I think the industry I think the fashion industry takes a bit of a hard brunt on that there's there's eating disorders everywhere mm. there's mental well-being problems in in many industries you know we talk about where you where you have to be anything really where you I believe in sort of modeling you you you, you are looking at health and fitness and being in shape you don't have to be in shape to be a model of course but and when you're looking at that then um, you're looking at sports people, ballerinas, dancers, jockeys, <laughs> you know, there's, there's, there's can be problems everywhere. It's not just the fashion industry at the end of the day. So, um, which is something I talk about. I talk about, you know, mental well-being. It's something I, I talk about myself. So, um, and talk about my, if I've ever had dark times or any problems, I, I'm quite open about them, which ho hopefully uh, helps other, other people at the end of the day. I guess a lot of people don't see somebody like you having an imposter syndrome. I think that's, you know, maybe that's hard mm -hmm. to imagine for a lot of people, but what is it that you have to say about, you know, insecurities mm -hmm. um, that you've had yourself? Has that been? Imposter syndrome is, again, I, I don't always think it's a terrible thing because mm -hmm. I think you should be pushing the boundaries of where you can be. And if you're constantly pushing those boundaries, you're gonna have imposter syndrome. You are going to be, you're gonna be in a room or you're gonna be in industry or situations or anything with a lot more experienced people, but they were in that position once. And they probably were, that first day thought, what am I doing here, I'm gonna get found out. That is imposter syndrome. Mm. And then you have to prove yourself and prove yourself to those other people. And then once you get to a level where you think you've hit that experience and you get to that next level and that next level whatever it is whatever you want to achieve 
you probably will in those first few <laughs> years go, what am I doing here? Am I out of my depth? Um, and then hopefully you'll conquer that one. So that's my beliefing. It's not, it's, you know, we talk about it as a negative. Um, and with the imposter syndrome, with being in newness and, and, and industries and pushing boundaries, you'll probably will have a bit of anxiety, but you have to engage, sometimes engage your mental well-being to as negatives into a positive. And that will push you when, you know, to me, when I have that imposter syndrome or when someone says to me I can't do something, that's my push to absolutely keep pushing on and on and on and get the best at where I can be in that. And that's belief. And uh, you, you have to be steadfast in your other ways and not listen to people. And um, it's, it's, it's difficult. It, it can be. To, to filter out the noise, I always sort of say. There's a lot of people that if they think you're going to achieve something they can't, they don't want you to achieve something. You have mm. to remember that. Have to remember that. Always be very careful about the person you tell good news to. You want the people. Always remember that like, a, a good friend or a good person will be thrilled, whatever you're achieving. Mm. Have you had that? Have you had those type of friends where you felt I can't really share these news because I don't really absolutely. know? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. I think it's a very interesting way to put it, actually, that maybe <clears throat> when you're asking yourself, when will they find out about me? Maybe that even, <laughs> maybe that's a good sign that you're on the right track. As long as you're in the right direction, that you're, you know, I'm probably somewhere else yeah. uh, compared to six months ago. Now, like, yeah. I'm, now I'm pushing this in the right direction. I like that, you know, you're making that negative into actually... You know, I've been developing here. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's something I believe. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying anything I say is, is correct. I, I give my experience um, of, of what I've done. And, uh, yeah, it is. Um, it, it, it can be, but, you know, the anxiety and the imposter is something that I, I believe you are going to, hmm. you know, to have as something new. But you're, that, to me, is, means you're pushing the boundaries and uh, you're, you're trying to achieve your goal at that thing. I've done it in... The fashion world, I've starting my own brand. Um, when I came to work with uh, you know M&S and, and, and not knowing a thing, I, I do know now because that was my education in M&S to learn how to create a brand. Um, cutting materials, fabrics, marketing, designing, all those things I had to learn. I learned that in the six mile, uh, sorry, the six year stretch with M&S. I didn't know how to do that, first of all. And of course, when that goes on sale, you think, is anyone going to buy this? <laughs> yeah. um, and everything you do is, is, is that. Is anyone going, going, you know, going to like this, going to like what I'm doing? Um, yeah. It's, uh, but um, same with writing. You know, I've, um, I still think to this day, you know, I have Vanity Fair and the Telegraph. I'm lucky to, I'm thinking they're never going to ask me to write another article, <laughs> surely. It's very difficult for me to write that. But, I, you know, people seem to enjoy it. So, but that first article, I was like, well, you know, took me, can take a good writer an hour to write something. I was yeah. about two weeks into an article going, <laughs> I have no idea what I'm doing here. What is it? There's no lesson. There's no quick lesson you can learn how yeah. to write a, a motoring article for, for Vanity Fair. But you have to be on it. You have to, you know, some people are going to like it. Some people aren't. Mm. Are, you, can't, are can't. you still writing? Yeah. No. Not as much as I would probably like to mm. in many ways. Um, I do enjoy it when I can. Do you um, do you feel you you like it more than you're good at it, or are you good at it more than you like it? Because <laughs> I'm the I, I also do writing, and I 
I don't love it. Yeah. But I think I have. It's pretty easy for me to write. Okay. But I don't love it. I don't like it that much. But I do it anyway. I think you're but. writing something you're interested in. Yeah. I always make sure. Yeah. If 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 someone approaches me about writing something I'm not sure about, or I can think for my own interest, that would be really interesting in research and that, and then developing that. Then I'm more interested. If it's something I'm not interested in writing, then I have to say I don't enjoy it. Mm. Um, but I, I I love talking about like the you know the history and the story, like a good story behind the watch or. Mm-hmm or a car or clothing or something else that's uh, or design that's interesting to me but um yeah i've been stuck trying to work out how i'm going to either start or finish and sometimes it will come to me if i'm in the gym i'll, I'll be talking to myself about the article i think that's a great way to end it well that's a great middle but then where am i going in between here mm. um so it's a, it's a different way of writing but i'm very jealous of professional writers or journalists who I've been on launches and I just see them on the way back in the car to the airport, file it, done. And I'm like, my goodness. Going a week to the countryside and just having a Pretty much, yeah, and I get back home and uh, complete writer's block. But um, it's fun. But again, you know, it's uh, whether people ask me back to do it. So they must think it's uh, pretty decent in many ways. Would you say that you're... um, would you say that you're in a happy place now in your life? Is, are, you, uh, are you feeling good? Yeah. I mean, I'm the same as anyone else. You have good days. You have bad days. You have stressful weeks. Um, content, I suppose, is a little bit... I think if, you're, if you can be content with where you are sometimes, it's... it's uh, but again, I put myself in situations that is <laughs> always going to be stressful. Mm. You know, um, a new dad, most stressful thing. Most wonderful thing. But it changes. It's the biggest change in your life you ever do. You know, you're, you're um, and then on top of that, you build a house, start a business. Yeah. Still building the old businesses. That's that stress, and sometimes it's rewarding, and sometimes you think, what, what, what am I doing this for? Mm. Um, but in the end, you know, children are a wonderful thing because you're doing a lot for them. Yeah. Really, at the end of the day, um, you know, you you want them to have the best life. You perceive the best life and education, and everything else. So. You, uh, there's an incentive to to carry on, but um, always make sure that, um, and then you've got to get that balance right between, of course, personal life and work life, of course, which is uh, probably the most difficult thing. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's um, it's a stressful time, but uh, it's always, there's a stress. I mean, people, <laughs> I was at a um, clay pigeon shooting, and the guy was trying to work out because I couldn't hit any of the easy clays. <laughs> the most complicated case I could I was shooting every time and he said your brain works in a very strange <laughs> way he said you make life very hard for yourself <laughs> so even something pleasurable like that I was trying to make I was for some reason making it hard he was trying to work out the way to explain something the most huh. difficult clays I could get the other ones I wasn't really interested in okay. that was the challenge and that's where I think my life sometimes like it's the challenge it's the risk and reward yeah, um, and if I didn't, that, that, that that's um, that's what retirement's for <laughs> in the future. And I guess I mean starting the brand is is also a very new challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something you've been thinking about for a long time, and mm. that's been developing? Because you launched it now in the end of twenty twenty one. Yeah, uh, we're just nearly a year old now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, well, seems, it seems longer. Yeah, <laughs> it's gone quickly, but there's a lot happened in that year. 
Um, a lot happens in a day, a lot happens in a, in a week in this business. So um, with the challenges, of course, M&S, as I said, mm. I, I, the goal to me was I, I would have liked to, however that looked 10 years ago, and you know, my name on a clothing brand to be in complete control of the creative, of the designs, um, to bring in a team I loved working with that had the same work ethic as me, mm. um, and I could control that. That was always the aim, but of course, um, I didn't believe I could do that. That's knowing my limitations. I couldn't, people can now, of course, you can with social media, you can start a brand, you get a few t-shirts made and people well, they might take off. And good for that, but I didn't want, I wanted to start something much bigger. And of course I had to go and learn how to do that. And that was, when you first do that with collaborations and that was with M&S. But of course M&S, you don't have the stresses of funding, mm. investments, mm. Payrolls, <laughs> <laughs> everything. You know, really. marketing costs, advertising costs, absolutely Connecting everything. Connecting the cables to the computers in the first day. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So, um, yeah, th th that's when the team comes into that as well. Of course, having an incredible team around you. And, and uh, I talk about my work ethic. The people that work for me have to have that work ethic mm. and they have to believe in that brand, and they do. You know, they. Um, we've all got, we're a small brand. We've all got, like I said, three or four hats on mm. of... You're, you don't just come in, you're a designer, you're a designer, stroke, working with, you need to know your web stuff, you need to know mm. you're doing banners, you're, and the same for me. So my role that I thought I was going to be in as a founder of a brand has changed for sort of very much, and uh, that's when that team needs to come on and take some of that work away from you, and I need to go off and do lots of different things as well, and, and make those opportunities for that team and the brand. And uh, I, I suppose I had a, a bit of a different thing where I thought it'd be lovely in the office designing a few pieces and with yeah. do that now and again but it's a very small part of it what is your role in the company are you more to the ceo side or the creative director or uh, doing a, a bit of everything or well, what's yeah. i mean there's there's a lot going on um so yeah there, there's lots of different hats so we, we say so we all put on but mm. um i love the team to i trust the team they've all got their different roles and i trust them and they want to step in my mark too much i have to make those decisions those final decisions and that being on me if that's right we're you know we're right if i'm wrong it was my fault mm. don't want to blame anyone and but um i never want to interfere too much and micromanage anyone too much but i've got a brilliant team who i trust um but i do need to make this decision sometimes looking over the whole thing and changing direction or changing where we're going or what we're doing next season and um i need to make those and we need and then you need to find funding and investment to be able to do that um, so yeah, it's uh, a founder's role, a CEO role. Yeah, it's a creative director. I, I say it's a sort of creative direction. I think the creative direction of the company of a fashion brand is where the most important, one of the most important areas is, and you base everything around that. You have to believe again where that brand is going to be. So with Wellwear, you know, we have we always gone on the ethos of we're creating a different clothing category. We're bringing wellness and apparel you know, together for the first time. Um, never really been done. We're seeing other brands do this now, by the way. They're taking the same, you know, putting treatments in their clothing. And mm. sometimes you know you're, you've, you're onto something, you've got something right when other brands are starting to do what you're mm. doing. Um, so, yes, we're, uh, but that's our, that's our aim, that's our ethos. And then that's where we want to build from there. But we had to get that stability, you know, those foundations right of where we were. Um, but I had those foundations, of course, already from 
working with the collaboration. People knew what I stood for and they knew what I stand for in my brand. That hopefully I'm very you know, authentic of what I say and what I put on my social media isn't being paid to do. And I am mm. believer in what I'm putting on, on, on those items. And I believe in the clothing brand. And I'm, we're looking at this, you know, the idea of um, you know, sustainability a little bit differently. Mm. Um, and that to me is quality. That to me is, is sourcing the fabrics and sourcing the factories and everything. There's a lot of noise at the moment to buy clothes, if you understand this. There's a lot of choice. Yeah. And there's a lot of noise you have to listen to about sustainability and longevity or fast fashion and everything else. So what I believe in is that, you know, if you if you want, uh, you know, something that rivals most luxurious brands, it's an attainable cost. We've looked at sustainability and we've brought wellness into factor. Um, we've ticked all those boxes. We've done all the work for you, should we say. Mm. So it's, you know, when you open up and you're looking for that white T-shirt, well, we said it in our product. There's your ultimate white T-shirt. Mm. I believe it's the, the, you know, the best on the market at the moment. And that's what we try and do with every piece that we, we produce. After being in the fashion industry for for many years and now designing mm-hmm. clothes yourself, um, what's what's your creative process like? How do you generate your own inspiration for creativity? I, mean, I wouldn't say I'm designing. I'm, I'm not the designer. Claire Staines is the, is the designer, along with Paige in, in, our, uh, in Wellwear. Um, we get together as a team. I have my ideas of where the brand needs to be and with our, you know, the creative vision and the clothing. It has to appeal to me, but of course, it has to appeal to a wider market. I'm not just making clothes for me. Um, so we have to understand where we think, not necessarily what the trends are of today, because I don't believe in following trends. I believe you set trends. Um, and yeah, there are goals, really, at the end of the day. But our fundamentals of whatever we are making is the fundamentals of how we started the brand, which is what we talk about in the ethos of, the, of, of, of well-wear. Um, so it's, there are discussions there are arguments there are ways you know there's uh we're going into many different categories now and the way that looks and of course the way people are shopping the way people are dressing the pandemic changed a lot of that for a start Mm. um but before that that was changing into um much more of a relaxed dressing down nature less away from tailoring less away from suits in the office um but how do we create that in as we say um the most stylish way of being comfortable and um that's what we look at all the time. What is uh, what is the vision with the company? What do you envision this going into? You know, in five ten years from now, have you? I mean, I very rarely tell my goals to people where it where it's going to be. Where it's um, we have our essentials and we have our, as I said, our uh, our, our our brand <coughs> ethos of where we want to be. That's that's you know I think people understand that where you know that 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 won't change. The categories we go into is up to us mm. where we see we can produce and rival and a gap in the market or is it so that's um, I know where I would like to go. You know, there's a lot of as I moving the chessboard about a bit to make sure that happens, but we all need to make sure that this is where we're going. That's what we do. We are. You know, sort of sometimes six months, I'm a year into thinking where we're going. Six months is where we're designing. So when people see 
they're seeing our launch you know, uh, at the moment of, of uh, autumn winter, which we've changed in a year to how we, we launched one big collection. Now we think it's a better way of launching every two to three weeks a different drop to mm. give people newness, to give their creativity newness, different creativity to all that. So we've completely swapped around. As I was telling you earlier, people's touch point to an e-commerce brand or direct consumer is the e-commerce images, not necessarily the campaign. So we've changed that around a year. Things are constant. This is within, not even within a year, you know, within like the last six months, we've decided to completely change that. Um, and we're still trying to keep do all this within an attainable pricing point for everyone, which I think we're, we're achieving in many, many ways. So um, the world really in, in the categories that we're going to go in is, is our oyster in many ways. We're not going to go into tailored suits. Yeah. That's that's something very very different. You know, that's that's an art in itself. That that's something we won't do. Um, but we do have our easy set, which is our version of an everyday suit in many ways. So, um, but it's not tailoring. Two completely different things. Throughout interviews and people you met, kind of like this in a podcast or for um, for press in the past as well. What are some of the questions that nobody has asked you that you, you know, either that you've been wanting to lift or that you just felt, you know, this is, this is interesting that they never asked about? <laughs> I mean, I, one of the things that always amazes me is, is, is nothing to really do with asking questions, but is actually when we were talking about you know, university and schools and the direction we're going to go in is, is do you, you start from you know, higher education, it just seems to be the ultimate goal and it was always this area before that where I said I was clearly into design and I was car mad and car passionate and I was always intrigued why teachers or anyone at that point ever came up to you to ask you what's your passion you know Mm. because often it's that passion that you should go into Mm. and no one ever did that and uh, you know I think that would have been if you actually looked and people said you're very good at you know design is obviously something important to you cars are obviously something important to you but it's that that, that um, sort of inquisitive nature of people asking where do you actually want to go instead it was just what do you want to study at university and you'd go am I going to I am going to university then and that, that's that's where you have to think about all the time it's like that's your goals of where you want to be but um, and it's uh, yeah it's an intriguing sort of thing to think about again though it's like people but in, 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 in interviews it's uh yeah, I've been asked some weird and wonderful things over the time. but um. And my last question for you is, what would you like to ask my next guest, not knowing who it is? Oh, wow. Difficult question. What I I know. Not knowing who that person is is so <laughs> difficult, isn't it? It's like, straight away when you said that, I had, oh, I wonder who his next guest is. I should have looked who his next guest is. <laughs> so that, that, that's an intriguing one. Really, really difficult. <laughs> I don't think I can even answer it. It's, like, it's, it's mad. It's a really funny one, actually. And you said, "Are you happy at the moment?" That's a funny question to ask someone. It's a. It's a I've been asked it a few times, and I go, "Uh, th- it's." Are you thinking about that moment? Are you thinking over life? Are you thinking? Um, regret is always an interesting one mm. to ask people if they have regrets or not. I've always kind of intrigued whether people do it, how that, how you work that into someone. Some people seem to work on you know they, they have whether they have regrets or not i always say you you learn more from making mistakes than 
than you do sometimes your successes. Um, do you have any regrets? No, that's what I'm, what I'm kind of saying. There's no, I, I don't think there's a point of having regrets. As long as you learn from, everyone makes mistakes. Hopefully you learn from them. If you don't learn from them, I think that's a, the definition of insanity, isn't it? <laughs> that if you keep on doing the same thing, expecting a different result. So yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I, I think that's it. You learn from them and you try never to, to make those again. I think that's basically it. But um, some people, I think, can hold on to regrets and you know, not, not try and sort of progress from that. But it's an intriguing thing how you know, people's minds work in that, in that way. Um, it's always an interesting, mm-hmm. yes, yeah, something to ask someone. I'm going to ask my next que- my next guest whether they have any regrets, <laughs> and I will look forward to that. Question. <laughs> I think that's a good question. <laughs> David, thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Enjoyed it. Thank you so much. It's been an honor to have you here. I'm looking thank forward you. to all the success with uh, the brand, with the house, with the family to follow it. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and check out. David Gandhi Wellwear. What's the website? How do you find it? DavidGandhiWellwear.com. Dot com. Yeah. Same on social simple. media handles. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Thanks so much. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that.